360 degrees. Hop high, 360 degrees. Hop high, 306, 306, 360 degrees. Hop high. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine produced by members and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. Broadcasting from right here at KPFA in Huchin, occupied Ohlone territory, also known to settlers as Berkeley, California. And again, happy Black History Month, people. Tonight, Full Circle continues to honor Black history with week two of our special stories and interviews. On tonight's show, we'll hear pieces produced by past apprentices, including a look at some dark times in our history when lynching was rampant. And I will share a tragic story from my family some listeners may be familiar with. We'll also hear some thoughts on Harlem history and Billie Holiday. And later we'll have a short tribute to one of the original Supremes. All that tonight on Full Circle. I am your host, Freewell and Franklin, coming to you from downtown Antioch, Bay Miwok territory. Keep it locked right here to KPFA. All right, all right. Again, welcome to Full Circle, the weekly show produced by apprentices and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. My name is Freewell and Franklin, and I am your host tonight. And tonight, Full Circle continues honoring black history. So let's start off tonight with a commentary and some spoken word. Throughout history, there have been notable art movements, periods when art clearly influenced society. Art gives us a way to view our surroundings, provide political commentary, and express ourselves in ways that evoke emotion. During the Harlem Renaissance from the 20s to the 40s, Writers, artists, and poets met regularly in salons to confer, share their work, and just celebrate life. Back in 2007, as part of the group Connections, Shonda Fields wrote this commentary on Harlem and shared a poem on Billie Holiday. Take a listen. The Harlem Renaissance a period in history that transformed the African-American man, woman, and child, allowing them to create their own self-identity. From the early 1900s to the 30s, the Harlem Renaissance resulted in the change of all African-American communities throughout the world. They touched and influenced all nationalities and exposed their talent. Young blacks came to Harlem to shine in hopes of being famous. They came from all over the world, hoping to become that next rising star. Harlem had a way of putting a trance on you. You can hear mellow music from Lady Day, even the poetry that touched our hearts by Langston Hughes. From the salons to the rent parties, everyone would support each other to promote history and became the Academy of African American Talent, exposing the world to art and the lives that lived it.
Eleanor Billy, Eleanor Billy, it's your time to shine. Gleam, queen, with jazz on your mind. All around Harlem, one of the greatest voices you'll ever hear is Miss Lady D spitting that Lafuki in your ear. As smooth as silk, you can address the day with the late Count Basie and his orchestra ready to play. As the party takes off, we're in for a treat. Cause the lady in satin has a voice so sweet. While Charles Honeycombs was tapping and George Pop Foster had the crowd hypnotized, Billy got introduced to stardom with no surprise. Rise, Billy, rise. Wipe your weeping eyes and put your hands on your hip and let your backbone slip. Big City Blue, Symphony in Black, thanks Duke Ellington for the slack, Jack. See, these are the people that help me shine. I'm Lady D, so keep that on your mind. Everyone notices me. Can't they see I'm living out my fantasy? Hell, I love Billy D. Smile, child, for a while. Let's live life in style. I guess I'll go to New Orleans and get me a gig. I'll sing along Louis for his name is so big. And the best is what I'll do for, he is my mentor. Sing, child, sing, lady, sing the blues. Lady D is my name, but thanks to Joe Guy, I'll never be the same. John Hammond, Count Basie, Artie Shaw, yeah, we're all still friends. But I bit strange fruit. Now my life is in a whirlwind. Love a man, love a man, where are you? I'm sick and I'm lonely now. Lady sings the blues. Stormy weather is what I see ahead. But what a little moonlight won't do for the dead. Wake up, wake up, I want to sing. Good morning, heartache in my ear ring. Don't explain to my fans my life. They never knew my struggles and strife. Instead, I leave to you my history and my soul. Hopefully, you'll remember me when you grow old. Life's been good to me. Hell, I'm Lady D. To all the musicians that I've encountered that's gone, God bless the child who's got his own. Welcome back to Full Circle here on 94.1 FM, KPFA and KPFA.org. 
I am Free Will and Franklin, and you just heard Shonda Fields from Apprentice Group Connections, and those were two pieces she produced back in 2007. Thank you, Shonda. Well, let's keep it rolling. Tonight, I'm sharing with you some pieces created by Apprentice's past. Now we turn to one of the darker and more moving pieces. That's a history of lynching produced by Rod Akeel. In 2007, when Rod produced this, he wrote, This ugly American history has a direct link to the terror African Americans are feeling today. That no matter how many social strides we make, the myth of progress is smashed by lynching. He went on to talk about recent cases such as November of 1985 when a young black man, Timothy Lee, was found hung in a tree at the Concord BART station. And although neighbors living in the area say they heard screaming and people running and a car speeding off, Timothy's death was still ruled a suicide. Later in June of 1986, just a few months after the case of Timothy Lee, the body of a black woman was found hanging from a tree near a bank parking lot about 10 miles from the BART station. Contra Costa County Sheriff Jeff Wells said trash collectors found the woman's body while making their rounds early in the morning. These are just a few of the many cases leading all the way up to just last year when two black men were found hung in Southern California, just two weeks apart. Here is Rod's piece from 2007. And just a warning for our listeners, part of this piece contains a graphic description of a lynching and may be disturbing to some listeners. After the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which made African-American citizens of the United States, riots broke out in many of the southern states. As a result, the Ku Klux Klan was established in 1867, and the number of African-American lynchings increased dramatically. In the years between 1882 and 1930, in the 10 southern states, there were 2,805 documented victims of lynchings. The vast majority of these lynchings, 2,500, were African American. Of these black victims, 94% died in the hands of white lynch mobs. The scale of this carnage means that, on the average, a black man, woman, or child was murdered nearly once a week, every week, by a hate-driven white mob. During these ritual racist killings, crowds would gather as if they were going to a town festival. Parents would bring their children to watch a human being tortured, burned, and lynched. Dr. Joy Leary, the author of Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, in one of her lecture reads a newspaper article that describes in great detail one of these lynchings. Before the torch was applied, the Negro was deprived of his ears, fingers, and genital parts of his body. He pleaded pitifully for his life while the mutilization was going on, but stood the ordeal of fire with surprising fortitude. Before the body was cool, it was cut to pieces, the bones were crushed into small bits, and even the tree upon which the wretch met his fate was torn up and disposed of as souvenirs. The Negro's heart was cut into several pieces, as was also his liver. Those unable to obtain the ghastly relics direct paid their more fortunate possessors extravagant sums for them. Small pieces of bones went for 25 cents, and a bit of the liver, crisply cooked, sold for 10 cents. 
As soon as the Negro was seen to be dead, there was a tremendous struggle among the crowd to secure the souvenirs. Knives were quickly produced, and soon the body was dismembered. Plain old common folk did this. In the documentary, American Lynching, James Cameron remembers being almost lynched. I was 16 years old. Thomas Ship was 18 and Abram Smith was 19. The mob came into the jail and they got Tommy out first. He was right below me on the first floor. They took him around from this side of the jail to the other side and hung him on the jail windows where Abe was incarcerated. And no doubt Abe was looking at him as they hung him from the windows on the outside of his cell block. Then 15 or 20 minutes later, after celebrating that kill, they came back in, they got Abe out, they beat him to death, drug him past the alley here and I couldn't see anymore. And then a half a block away, they hung him on the tree. Finally, this guy said, take them all out and lynch them. And when he said that, this 16-year-old boy, Charles Haynes, he raised his hand and said, it wasn't none of us, Mr. That's him right there. And he pointed his finger at me like that. And when he did that, the mob closed in on me. And when they got out into the street, the mob hollered, we got him, we got him, we got him. And the police was helping the mob so they could get me up to the tree where Tom and A was hanging with a rope around their neck. And they got me up to the tree, they put the rope around my neck, and they threw the end of the rope over the limb of the tree. I kept looking to the right and to the left and begging for help and telling the people to help me that I hadn't done anything to deserve this. And they were getting ready to pull me up when I prayed to God. I said, Lord, have mercy and forgive me my sins. As soon as I prayed, a voice came out and said, take this boy back. He had nothing to do with any killing or raping. And that voice came from far away, drifting down. And uh, that mob that had already killed two human beings, and they took that rope off my neck and they allowed me to stumble and stagger back to the jail, which was just a half a block away. People from the lynch mob would take photographs of the dead victims and make postcards and mail them to their friends and relatives throughout the country. They would also take these photos, frame them, and hang them on their living room walls as if they were family portraits. For the past 25 years, James Allen has collected over 100 photographs and postcards of lynchings throughout the United States. These photos have been published as a book called Without Sanctuary. Mr. Allen comments on his findings. In America, everything is for sale, even a national shame. Studying these photographs has engendered in me a caution of whites, of the majority, of the young, of religion, of the accepted. Perhaps a certain circumspection concerning these things was already in me, but surely not as actively as after the first sight of a brittle postcard of Leo Frank, dead in an oak tree. It wasn't the corpse that bewildered me, as much as the canine-thin faces of the pack lingering in the woods, circling after the kill. Hundreds of flea markets later, a trader pulled me aside and, in conspiratorial tones, offered to sell me a real photo postcard. It was Lord Nelson, hanging from a bridge, caught so pitiful and tattered and beyond retrieving, like a paper kite snagged on a utility wire. That image of Laura layered a pall of grief over all my fears. I believe the photographer was more than a perceptive spectator at lynchings. 
positioning and lighting corpses as if they were game birds shot on the wing. Indeed, the photographic art played as significant a role in the ritual as torture or souvenir grabbing. Lust propelled the commercial reproduction and distribution of the images. Even dead, the victims were without sanctuary. With each encounter, I can't help thinking of these photos and the march of time and of the cold steel trigger in the human heart. There were a number of African-American journalists. One such heroic journalist was Ida B. Wells. Ms. Wells constantly wrote about the discrimination and inequality that African-Americans endured in the United States. When three close male friends were lynched for opening up a grocery store directly across the street from a white-owned grocery store, outraged by the murder of her friends, Ms. Wells began an anti-lynching campaign. She wrote scathing editorials against lynching, and she spoke publicly throughout the country on the subject, and began to organize and mobilize African Americans in an effort to abolish this vicious practice. As a result, a mob destroyed the office of her newspaper, and she lived under constant death threats. During this horrific time, black congressmen tried to pass an anti-lynching bill. The U.S. House of Representatives passed a measure three times to make lynching a federal offense, but it was knocked down in the Senate. Powerful Southern senators used the filibuster to block votes. The Southern senators didn't want to offend their constituents with anti-lynching laws. Some of the arguments used on the Senate floor, quote, Whenever a Negro crosses this dead line between the white and the Negro race and lays his black hand on a white woman, he deserves to die." Unquote. That was said by Alabama Senator James Thomas Heflin in 1930. In a 1938 debate, Richard B. Russell, a senator from Georgia, constantly referred to lynching victims as niggers. On June 14, 2005, the U.S. Senate approved a resolution apologizing for its failure to pass federal anti-lynching laws. It's the first time the Senate has apologized for the nation's treatment of African Americans. Too little, too late. We still have African Americans terrorized by violence today. There was the highly publicized killing of James Byrd, who was dragged behind a truck and decapitated in Jasper, Texas. There was the well-dressed African-American young man who was found hanging from a noose in Concord, California. That official claim was a suicide. And of course, there is the systematic genocide of young black men in urban communities today. So in another hundred years, will the government apologize again for the thousands of black lives lost and they still didn't do anything to stop it? For Full Circle, I'm Rod Akil.
blood on the leaves and blood at the road black bodies swinging in the southern breeze strange fruit hanging from the Welcome back to Full Circle here on 94.1 KPFA. You just heard Strange Fruit by Billie Holiday. Strange Fruit was written by Abel Mirapool and published in 1937 and then was recorded by Billie Holiday in 1939. The song protests the lynching of black Americans with lyrics that compare the victims to the strange fruit of trees. And before that song, we heard a piece about the history of lynching by then-apprentice, now-graduate apprentice, Rod Akeel. And Rod produced that piece in 2007. Thank you, Rod, for putting that moving piece together. And something you heard Rod mention at the end of that piece was the case of Timothy Lee, the 23-year-old man who was found hung in a tree at the Concord BART station in November of 1985. Well, tonight I want to share with you something that I have not really spoke about on the air before, and that is that that well-dressed black man Rod referred to who was found hung at a Concord BART station, well, that was Timothy Lee, and he was my cousin. I was in eighth grade then and don't remember much about the case at the time as it was kind of kept away from the youngest in the family like myself. It's strange to me to realize now as an adult that my cousin Timmy was actually lynched right here in Concord 
in 1985. And like many of the cases we see, Timothy's death was ruled a suicide, even in the face of contrary evidence. Here's a couple of paragraphs out of an Associated Press article in 1985, and forgive me for using the language of the paper, but I wanted to be clear how they spoke about my cousin and other people. Here's the quote from the article. Piercing screams that roused several neighbors from their sleep proves a black homosexual found hanging at a transit station was lynched and did not commit suicide, according to a black organization. We didn't believe from day one that it was suicide, Thority Ashley of the NAACP said Friday. I think the screams will help show he was murdered. The article goes on to say, Friends and family members said the 23-year-old Lee had called for a ride home from the station and had given no clue of depression then or in the days before his death. Marilyn Hannum and Bill Callison, who share a home near the station, said they heard screams. Miss Hallinum said she thought it was some sort of hazing. They were loud screams, she said, that seemed to be coming from the BART parking lot. When I got up and got dressed and went outside, the screaming had stopped, she said. About ten minutes later, Callison heard three or four screams, followed by a final scream which had a rising pitch and ended suddenly. They said that they heard at least two or three people running and getting into a car within 30 seconds of that last scream. All that and Timothy's death was still ruled a suicide. And as I stated, this is something not talked about much in my family, but I decided to see if my dad would share a little about what happened to his nephew. And this is the short conversation we had about my cousin Timothy, who was most likely lynched at Concord Bart in 1985. Okay, Dad, welcome back to Full Circle, because I know you've been on in a couple different aspects in my stories. But like I mentioned to you earlier, we just played a piece by Rod Kill, and at the end, he talked about a young, well-dressed man that was actually found hung at the BART station in Concord. And I'm mentioning tonight that this is kind of the first time I've ever really shared it on the air, but that man, that well-dressed man, Timmy actually was our cousin. So I wanted to ask you about it and see if we can get a little bit about it tonight. So tell me first how we are related to Timmy. Thank you for having me back on. It's always nice to talk about things. Uh, this is one of the things kind of hard for me to talk about, but I will tell you what I think I know and how I felt about it. Timmy was my sister's son. So he is my first nephew. He's a nephew. We noticed at a young age that he was different. Timothy was gay. Just really a, a, a neat kid. Uh, this happened back in the era when you find a young black man on BART. And I know from being around Timothy, that he uh, would never incite anything bad or anything. He was just a nice guy to everybody. This, to me, was truly a, unfortunately, 
racist thing that happened because you're looking at a young black gay man by himself. And this was in an era when that was frowned upon. Unfortunately, we all suffered with the loss, my sister, all of us. And again, unfortunately, it was never solved. So we had to live with that. His brother passed away a few years ago. So that always brings back memories about them and his sister. So it's kind of hard for me to talk about it, but that's, that's how I feel about that. I, uh, well, how about this? Tell me about like when it happened at the time, um, and they ruled it a suicide, but there was not really much investigation and, um, a witness from the scene, which I'll share the article on our website after the show, um, said they heard someone screaming and people, uh, running and a car driving away. Just tell me about how it felt to you that although there was some of this um, witnesses that nothing ever really happened and how that left you and especially Tammy feeling to uh, Timmy's sister, Tammy. Um, in, in understanding your question, how do I feel? And there was witnesses that thought nothing really happened. Yeah, I was devastated, uh, along with the family. Uh, it was, he was a good kid. Things like that should never happen. I really felt for my nieces and nephews, meaning the brothers and sisters. And uh, yeah, it was bad. I, 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 don't, I don't talk about it too much, but yeah, it was bad. I, uh, God bless him wherever he is. And I hope everything is okay. And Tammy, our cousin who I knew more, who unfortunately, um, RIP Tammy, we lost Tammy a couple of years ago. She was really affected by it because she felt like, um, as far as I understand from the family story that she felt like not enough was done and that people gave up. How did it affect Tammy, um, in your eyes? Tammy and Timmy were very close and it affected her really bad because there was somebody that was like, another extremity of hers they were close they did everything together that's how it hurt her that somebody that she loved so much and knew who and what he was to be gone like that and really she thought nothing was not enough was done to try and bring this to an end so people could get on with their lives, but, and I can understand her feeling that way, but we did stay with it for the longest time as a family and checked in with the Concord PD and all the people that were investigating it. And they said they were still on it. It's not closed, but we're talking years and years and years ago. And I have, I don't know what would happen if I even tried to bring it up now, but yeah, it's unfortunate. She just thought that uh, nothing was done. Not enough was done. And unfortunately she went to her grave feeling that way. All right, dad. Well, I was been thinking about it since I heard Rod's story again. And 
Also described in one of the articles I've been reading, besides the lady that said she had heard someone screaming and uh, the car drive away, there was also an incident at a bar earlier that night when some men dressed in actual like hooded sheets and robes terrorized a black man at a bar earlier that night in Concord. And I'm just thinking like, well, how old were these people maybe? If they were in their 20s, you know, and this was the 80s, they might be, um, am I doing the math right, by in their 50s or 60s these days? So they could still be out there and they could still be alive, the perpetrators of this crime. And there is no statute of limitations on murder. They're probably up there in their 60s, 70s right now. Of course, this is all speculation, but of course, um, as well, it's just been on my mind hearing Rod's story. Well, Dad, I appreciate you um, coming on and talking about a very sensitive subject in the family and something that I didn't really know about. At the time this happened in 85, I was probably in eighth or ninth grade. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, well, um, I thank you for joining me again tonight, Dad, and thanks for sharing this touching subject because to me it's kind of strange to know that my cousin was probably a victim of lynching at a Concord BART station back in 1985, and that's not that far back. Yeah, and I, I, I agree with you. and I think that at one time I, I had mentioned that to the authorities, that I thought that this was a racially inflicted incident on a young gay black man, and I did mention the word lynching. Of course, they, you know, told me to be careful. And that was basically about it. All right. And um, lastly, I would just say, according to the newspapers, the local NAACP had gotten involved and had also put up a call that this was a ridiculous case, calling this a suicide. And that those two witness testimonies, um, which I will share, states clearly that they had heard an incident out there. Okay, Dad, again, thanks for um, joining me tonight and um, talking about this sensitive subject. Okay, it's always good talking to you. Stay safe and keep in touch. Thank you. All right, you're listening to Full Circle right here on 94.1 FM and worldwide at kpfa.org. And that was my dad, Frank Sterling Sr., talking about his nephew, my cousin, Timmy Lee, who was found hanging from a tree at Concord Bart in 1985. And as you heard in that interview, no one was ever caught or punished for that crime. And again, as I reflect on what happened to Timmy and the lack of any criminal prosecution, I wonder who these men are that chased my cousin down and did this to him. Where are they now? How old are they? And of course, can they be found and held accountable? Will there be any champion for my cousins, Tammy and Timmy? Will there ever be justice for them and my family? We'll have to see. And again, a big thank you to my dad for sharing something he rarely speaks about. So we're going to move on now and close out the show on a more inspirational note. On Inauguration Day this January, three inspiring women honored Shirley Chisholm the first woman and the first African-American to run for the office of President of the United States. U.S. Representative Barbara Lee wore a pearl necklace 
gifted to her by the Chisholm family. Additionally, both Vice President Kamala Harris and First Lady Michelle Obama paid tribute to Chisholm by wearing shades of purple, a color that Chisholm often used in her campaign posters. On Twitter, Representative Lee said, Because of Shirley Chisholm, I am. Because of Shirley Chisholm, Vice President Harris is. Tonight, we share some of Ms. Chisholm's words as she contemplated entering the 1972 presidential race. Listen to these powerful words far ahead of her time. A woman must have self-confidence. A woman must know that she has ability, intelligence, and capacity for leadership. A woman must know that she must be made up in such a way that in spite of the insults, the misunderstandings, the slurs, that she will be able to carry on because she's focused on something that's bigger than the pettiness and the jealousies and the rivalries that will surround her if she's asserted. A woman must know that there are people that she can turn to to help her in times of distress when the going gets so rough that sometimes she wonders whether or not she can carry on. But she will be able to carry on because she knows that so many people out there saying, we are with you, it's rough, but go on. I think it's important to recognize that women in terms of entering the political arena must be very strong kinds of individuals. And I say to you that I really mean when I come here before you today that the hour has now arrived in our country that there is a need for strong women running for political offices in America. And it is not to say that I am against men, but whoever said that political offices in this country, even the presidency of the United States of America, should be the exclusive domain of only one segment of the society. It would be wonderful to see some other kinds of persons being president of this country. <laughs> we have left the presidency of this country in the hands of a particular segment ever since the inception of the Republic. And look at where we are today. So maybe it is time for a change. Maybe, believe it or not, it is time to have a black woman to save the nation. As I've said to many persons, I'm so terribly sorry that I cannot put on a show for you because I do not have the money to have all of the advanced men preceding me. I do not have the money to have the buses ready to get the school children to come when I come into town to give the illusion that everybody's going with me. 
The only thing I have to give to you, the people, is my heart and little old me. I say to you this afternoon that I never would have initiated my candidacy because I'm cognizant of the fact that I'm a part of two segments of America that has never participated in the decision-making processes. I'm black and I'm a woman. But I tell you, people in this country crossing color lines and sex lines as a result of watching me on the national scene for the past three years asking me to make a serious bid for the presidency of this country. And my saying to these people, I will not be taken in by rhetoric or flattery, but you must return to your respective states and begin to get the foot soldiers and the fundraising events, and then I'll know that you mean it. Within six weeks, I knew that I had to make a decision. I knew I had to make a decision as to whether or not I would accept the challenge, and I did. I decided that I'm going to run for the presidency of this country. For the first time, you will see at that convention a proportionate number of black people, black people who have been fighting constantly as they came from the southern states, just in order to walk in the door of a convention room to see what's going on, not even to participate, but just to see they've never been able to do that. Now, they will be coming in from Mississippi and Georgia and Alabama proportionately, and just to see, oh, just to see women there also proportionately to their numbers in the various states, and to see the young people coming for the first time in the history of the Republic, we will see a convention that is representative of the segments that make up America, and not a convention that's peopled only by 52-year-old men. <laughs> we have heard a great deal about the espousal of equalitarian principles and the granting of opportunities to people. We have talked about the fact that our nation is a bulwark of democracy. We have talked about the brotherhood of man, but we have not suited the actions to the word. And now here at this convention to see women and young people and black people see a cross-section of America. This is then the real beginning of the implementation of the American dream on its highest level. And even if we, you and I, are not able to win the nomination for the first time in the history of this country, how beautiful it would be if we could go with the delegates. And that's what I've been doing for the past seven months, hunting delegates. If we can go to that convention and be in a position of staying right where we are without running to the doors of all of these other persons, begging them to give us some crumbs while they eat up the banquet. For the first time, the process can be reversed in terms of the fact that the delegates that we will have taken from all over this country, they will have to come to us to get what they need. And when they come to us to get what they need, if you understand P-O-W-E-R, you would not just go around saying, 
I'm not going to give my vote to Shirley Chisholm because she can't be president. You will say rather, I'm giving my vote to Shirley Chisholm because she's a part of the coalition of forces that have never had any input in who is going to be chief executive. And then when she has all of those delegates, if they want to get across the top, she can be strong. And we can say, yes, we will give you the delegates you need. But before you get them, a black man for vice president of this country, we will get it, hopefully in an easy kind of way instead of some of what's been going on. A woman for the head of the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. We need a woman in that position. And yes, an Indian for the head of the Department of Interior. <laughs> Why should not our government on its highest level be reflective of all of the segments that make up America? For too long, America has been the exclusive domain of only one segment in America. That's why there are so many people in this country today that feel that the reality of the American dream can never come in their lifetime. I extend my arm to you in terms of telling you that together in a bloodless bloodless revolution, if you will, it can happen. It can happen. Someone who said, Mrs. Chisholm, what you are doing, you are saying that you would select people in your cabinet or asking people to select people in their cabinet on the basis of sex and race. That's what you would be doing. And my answer to them is this. You insult all of the other segments of America when you put a question like that. Are you saying there are no educated Indians? Are you saying there are no educated black men? Are you saying there are no educated women, that only white males can dominate and control everything? Are you saying that answer me, yes or no? The fact of the matter is that traditionally in this country, we have been led into believing that only this one segment who controls the corporate boardrooms, the educational institutions, we have been led to believe, at least by actions, that this particular segment is the only segment that should be holding all the important kinds of positions in America. This is wrong. It's time to break it. It's time to say, America, if we talk about the American dream, other persons in America begin to feel that they can move in to those kinds of positions. Wow. Just wow. Welcome back to Full Circle right here on 94.1 FM, KPFA, and worldwide at kpfa.org. You just heard the words of trailblazer Shirley Chisholm, unbought and unbossed. And she had some powerful words in that speech. And what stands out to me the most is some of the things she mentioned 48 years ago have actually come to fruition or are coming to fruition. She mentioned having a black man for vice president or even president. Check. Add black woman as well. She also exclaimed to roaring applause 
that we should have an Indian as Secretary of the Interior. And yes, hopefully check. Like him or not, Joe Biden has appointed the first Indian, yes, a Native American woman, Congresswoman Deb Holland, to be the first Native American Secretary of the Interior. But there is already much pushback on this from the Republicans. Some even go as far as calling Deb a radical. If confirmed, Representative Deb Holland, a Laguna Pueblo citizen, would become the first indigenous person to hold the role of Secretary of the Interior. The massive department has a huge range of responsibilities, overseeing tribal lands and programs, as well as managing national parks, federal lands, and natural resources. Republicans are concerned over Congresswoman Holland's open support for the Green New Deal, claiming she would be a disaster for the oil and gas industry, as she is against fracking and sees tribal rights as a priority over resource extraction. So we will see what happens. Republicans have vowed to block her, but I'm holding out hope she will make it in. One last thing that really struck me in Miss Chisholm's speech was that she wanted the government to be more reflective of our society and not run by the same old, old white men. And she debunks the argument we hear a lot today. That is that she would select people for positions based solely on their sex or race. And she replies to that question, you insult all other segments of society when you ask that question. Are you saying there are no educated Indians? Are you saying there are no educated women? Are you saying there are no educated black men? Yes, yes, Shirley Chisholm. Of course, these representatives have the ability to lead their departments. And I know there are many of us hoping to see the day when our government is truly, truly a reflection of our society. Again, that speech was from 1972 as Shirley Chisholm considered her run as the first black woman to seek the office of the United States presidency, unbought and unbossed. And thank you to Miss M for providing that audio for us tonight. Well, we are getting real close to the end of tonight's show, but we have one more gem for you tonight, and that is a couple of pieces from graduate apprentice Sharon Peterson. The first honors one of the original Supremes, then she'll remind us of the new ways KPFA has been covering the second impeachment of Donald Trump and how we can watch. Yes, watch. Check it out. Tonight, we remember Mary Wilson, one of the original Supremes. The Supremes' swan song, Someday We'll Be Together, was played loudly during the 1969 funeral of Fred Hampton assassinated Black Panther Party leader. Elaine Brown, activist and former Black Panther Party chairwoman, reminds us that Hampton often used that song to promote Black unity. Here is a sample of Mary Wilson's solo performance of Someday We'll Be Together from 1989. Mary Wilson left us on February 9th at age 76. Rest in power. Someday we'll be together
a little extra loving. If you did, take it. Spread it around. Love is no good all by itself, and we need more love. Thank you for your love this evening. Good night. Former resident's second impeachment trial may end tonight, but there's a chance it may go longer. So just in case, Pacifica Network airs all-day coverage on every hearing day from 10 a.m. to 4.58 p.m. Mitch Jezerich is your host throughout. You can also see Mitch Jezerich's coverage. I know this is radio, but for this trial, viewing is strongly recommended if you possibly can. The House impeachment managers show many, many powerful, never-before-seen videos and graphics. This is extreme history with extreme evidence happening in real time. To watch, please visit kpfa.org or the Letters in Politics YouTube channel. To listen, please tune in to 94.1 FM or visit kpfa.org and click on On Air from wherever you happen to be. But watch it if you can. 
Whether you watch or listen, you'll be getting your coverage from non-commercial, non-corporate radio that is supported by listeners and occasionally viewers. Now, even if it's all over by the time you hear this, the hearing's coverage will be archived for two weeks at kpfa.org. To listen, click on Archives. Or, for video, check out the Letters and Politics YouTube channel. And thank you, Sharon Peterson. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. Remember to check out our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after the show for pictures, archive shows, and for important links and information related to tonight's show. Shout out to all our producers tonight, Miss M, Sharon Peterson, Rada Keel, Shonda Fields, and myself. Hey! And one more final shout out to the Full Circle crew. Our executive producer is Miss M. Joy Moore is our production consultant. And me again, I have been your host, Freewell and Franklin. I am also the technical director for this show, Full Circle. And just a reminder, KPFA paid staff is associated with the Communication Workers of America, CWA Local 9415. Thanks again for listening, everyone. And remember to please protect your health and also your humanity. And stay tuned because up next on KPFA is Londa Bajita. Good night, everyone. Mm-hmm.